Welcome back to the Justin Podcast. We are a diverse group of friends who get together to talk about faith, culture, and all the things that interest us. For today's episode, we thought we'd do a follow-up to a very early episode that we did that got a lot of great feedback, which was The Ideal Christian Woman. One of our friends, shout out to Cheryl V, she suggested that we do a counterpart episode. What about Christian men? So today we're talking about the ideal Christian man. And so to kick us off, our question of the week is, growing up, who was a same-sex celebrity role model that you looked up to? And maybe it's someone you wanted to be like or someone that you just thought was really cool. But you know, who was that like role model that maybe was like a prime example of like manhood or womanhood to you? I guess if I could pick one person, I would pick Natalie Portman because she was really smart back when I think she started her career. I was in, in like high school or middle school. Yeah, she, she can speak multiple languages, I think. Yeah, she's just like very cultured and she's also a vegan and cares a lot about the environment, which I also care about. She just seems like really all around. Cool. I, I'm going to go. I'm also going to name someone outside of my ethnicity, if that's all right. I didn't have a whole lot of representation growing up. So um, I freaking love Sandra Bullock. This is Sandra Bullock before oh. the blind side. Okay. She was Miss Congeniality, Sandra Bullock. Love that movie. Love her. She's funny. She's gorgeous. That's it. <laughs> nice. I just love her. I just love her sense of humor. Yeah. Again, pre-blind side. We're talking 2000s. What okay? does she do? Yeah. She's like a darker skinned white woman. That's as close as we can get. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. Wait, but no, Tamara, I loved her. Yeah. Have you seen The Heat? Yes, I, I saw The Heat. I like that. She was really funny. That was really, that was really I, good. I, I like her McCarthy. in The Heat. That was yeah. a great movie. Yeah. yeah. I, I just, she's just a treat. I love her. Yeah. Uh, for me, let's see. You know, around the ages of like 12 or 13 is kind of when you start to develop your own musical tastes. And at that age, the album that everyone was listening to was Green Day's Dookie in 1994. As a 12-year-old who was just discovering punk music and the punk aesthetic, uh, I was really enamored with Billy Joe Armstrong. And I know these days, Green Day gets a pretty bad rap. Like, oh, they're sellouts, they're mainstream. No, but back in the day, they were truly punk. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, they caused mud fights and they tore apart their venue stages. And they actually, like would do things on stage, like spit into their fans' mouths. Just like really gross, crazy things. I mean, I guess I'll also add that, you know, they've been m- making music now for, what, 30 years? Probably yeah. more than 30 years. And I love the fact that they are like true artists in the sense that you know, they don't care about branching out into pursuing other professions. Like they just want to make music and they're going to keep making music. And we saw them in concert five years ago. They were actually really good. Oh, cool. Yeah. They sounded great. They it was the most fun it. concert I've yeah. ever been to. I was introduced to Green Day for, I guess, for probably their most commercial album, American Idiot. And mm-hmm. I really, those were like some of the first songs I learned on the guitar in high school. Oh, nice. And I just thought they're, they're I always like their to, their tunes, their musicianship. That's a statement that makes me feel old. Sorry. Yeah. Like what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I had one. I think I kind of took bits, pieces from other people. But I guess. David's role model is Jesus. You guys. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just keep it real here. <laughs> it's Goku. The answer is Goku. <laughs> uh, Goku. All right. It could be a fictional I'll character. Go with 
a mix of Goku and Will Smith. Yeah, Goku is the main character in Dragon Ball Z, which somehow is a lot more popular than when I was younger. I liked it when it was not as popular. Okay. <laughs> I guess because of being um, optimistic and like uh, liking to meet challenges. And then Will Smith for being cool. That's what I will say. Nice. Jenny, do you have one? This is a hard for me, but I think I want to say Summer Glau, who played River Tam in the amazing hit series Firefly and follow-up movie Serenity. I just love her so much because she plays somebody who's crazy but secretly a total badass. And Summer Glau actually trained professionally for ballet, and she looks like she weighs like 90 pounds. So in all of her fight scenes, they pit her against sometimes, it's like ridiculous, dozens of people and it's just her. The way she fights is so beautiful because she's dancing while she's fighting. She's so graceful. The fight scenes are always really fun. I just love the way she plays somebody who's so broken and yet also so strong at the same time. Every time I watch her, um, I feel like, oh, I maybe relate to her a little bit. Because, you know, sometimes we all feel a little bit crazy. <laughs> cool. We did that question because, you know, it's easy to see from just our answers that we have different images of masculinity and femininity from all sorts of places. Whether it's popular culture or our cultural upbringing or from our churches, and from our mentor figures. And so when we talk about biblical masculinity, you know, it's one of those things where I'm not really sure, like, what people think about this topic. It's one of the reasons why I thought this would be interesting to talk about, just to see, you know, what do you think of when you think of that topic? What have you heard from your pastors and your teachers, and what do you think a biblical man should look like? And so as we dive into this topic, my opening question for all of us is, in your church experience, what have people said about the status of today's modern Christian man? Um, talk about men aren't stepping up to the plate. Men aren't being good enough for a woman to marry, I guess. Um, Would you say one of the reasons why is because there's both in black and white churches, you know, we see this trend of more and more women in leadership positions within the church. Even in churches where women aren't allowed to preach, you know, we see women like stepping up in all other sorts of ministries. Uh, do you think that has something to do with it, David? I've been to churches that have said that that's a problem, that that's like the problem that men are facing is that that church is too female, that there are too many women in power, that women are, are being too pushy and making the church like all about them. And that women shouldn't complain that there are no good men, <laughs> that it's their own fault. Wow. Okay. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't go to those churches anymore, but yeah. Not tell us what you really feel. <laughs> so I think if a few of us went to the same church, at least for a few years, there was a lot of messages that men are like lazy, you know, they are not stepping up. It's almost like sort of saying the truth because, yeah, you know, I think there is this sort of endemic, like, you know, adults that are almost going through a second adolescence, like after college, but, you know, both men and women. Um, but when it comes to men in the church, I think there's a little bit of touching on what's true, but also a belittling of men without offering like actual 
substantive solutions. So you're telling men like, oh, you're not committal, you're not serious about your life, or you know, you're wasting your time playing video games and not like serving or not like cultivating relationships. And <laughs> that does become the cycle because I know with some churches there they don't really offer any keys to stopping that cycle, to actual leadership, to healthy relationships, to emotional support. So I think churches, you know, even if they're trying to talk their way out of the problem, they often perpetuate the problem, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think I got a lot of things that were kind of caught and not necessarily taught. Like, it's more like it seems like they're lifting up men to be above others into like a, a greater role. And I think that's why probably they're being so harsh on men without solutions. Like we're supposed to be able to just beat it into you and then you accept it. So you're saying there, there was a lot of critique because the men are supposed to be above and like this like special, like special specimen of the church that everyone's supposed to follow and emulate. And uh, therefore, like they didn't give space for men to be vulnerable, to be broken, to, like you said, be in process, exactly. to heal. Maybe they're not in a place where they can lead. Maybe they should never be a leader. Maybe they're called to serve or, you know, be, I don't know, the custodian of the church. But their their image of a man in the church is supposed to be always ahead, always above. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's that picture of manhood, that old school traditional idea of, of the man always being prepared, the man always being strong. Do you think that is is accurate to what the Bible is saying about what men need to be? Here's what I'm thinking. So in our campus ministry experience at Crew, I went to a conference when I was an underclassman. And at one of the breakout sessions at this New England regional conference, the topic was biblical masculinity. So they showed a movie clip to show what a picture of biblical manhood looks like. And they showed a scene from the movie Braveheart. And in this scene, uh, uh, you know, William Wallace is like the leader of the Scottish Rebellion. And after being away from home for 20 years to grow into manhood, he returns to his home village and he catches up with his old childhood friend, Hamish. And they greet each other by punching each other in the face. And then they immediately go to a literally a boulder throwing contest (laughs) to see which is the more manly as like a test of strength. (laughs) And, you know, I think that's a fun scene. I think it's supposed to be a funny scene. And I don't think it's meant to be taken as a serious picture of manhood. And and that's what these crew staffers did. They were like, this is what a man should be like. They were being serious? They weren't being to be funny? (laughs) Yeah, they weren't being funny. They were trying to apply this to the modern world. And I just didn't understand how that works. I don't get it. Yeah, so basically, you know, there's still this idea among most church circles, I would say, of, you know, the Bible affirming the, the masculine man. Our stereotypical mm-hmm. idea of the man, you know, is someone who watches sports, someone who knows how to fix cars, uh, someone who eats a lot of meat, provides for the family, and just is a model of strength and integrity and always knows what to do. Some of that is in the, from the Bible. Some of that is just cultural. When I look at the Bible, I don't see such a clear-cut picture of masculinity. But time and again, when I look at certain people in the Bible, uh, it shows such a wide range of what masculinity can look like in a believer's life. Now, think about King David, who was a poet and a musician, right? He played the lyre. 
And he danced in, in public, he made himself look ridiculous. I think about the Apostle John. When you look at the way he's described in the New Testament, he's pretty effeminate. He is the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, he is seen reclining at the bosom of Jesus, as the uh, old school translation goes. And think about Jesus himself. Jesus often describes himself and God in metaphors that are feminine. Uh, for instance, when, when Jesus um, laments over the city of Jerusalem and how they turned away from God, he says that he wishes that the children of Israel would turn back to him like the chicks would turn to a mother hen. So the Bible is fine with using feminine images for men. And so this whole stereotyping we see in the church, I think, is very backwards and very unhealthy. And I think it's based in Eurocentric standards of masculinity. Because when, if we just think of, for me, like having been great raised in the church, when I think about the man in the Bible, I, I think of strong and gentle, which is kind of what you were touching on. Uh, mm-hmm. But when I think about what I hear preached for men, it usually does have a element of paternalism where the man should be above, like David was saying, like the man should be greater, like have everything together so that they can take care of everyone and be in charge of everything. And I guess as a woman uh, in the church, a girl, and then a woman in the church, I was taught that that's what I should expect of men. I didn't get a lot of lessons on biblical masculinity, and I I can't really give you like specific tenets. So I'm I'm sitting listening to you guys to learn, but I I know that we got a lot of lessons on what women should do to make way for the paternalistic man, <laughs> which is a problem in itself. But um, right. So basically, what's the, the idea of like you have to defer and acquiesce exactly. to to the male yep. leader? Let him lead. Always, I always heard people say, "Let him lead. Be his support." And um, I mean, so much of our education about our bodies, et cetera, was all about like how to make it presentable for a man. And so we we were being groomed to be accessories for men. So, but this is the mm-hmm. ideal Christian man episode. <laughs> and so I, I I just think it is interesting that like the definition of a man a lot of times spilled over into a woman. Uh, how, how a woman mm-hmm. should be. I think also when I'm thinking about this topic, Scott, and looking back at the many, many male heroes in the Old Testament, I feel like what, I feel like what's really valued in an exemplary man is actually more mental than it is just, you know, some sort of physical display because Samson, for example, puts on all types of physical displays, but his heart is not with God. You know, he kind of rejects God's influence in his Mm. life and just goes his own way and does whatever he wants. That's a good example. Yeah, actually, yeah. Samson is a deconstruction of the manly man. Yeah. That is very true. And when you look at um, people who do great things like a Daniel or even throwback to our, our episode about random Bible passages, Ehud, who stabs um, the wicked king. <laughs> oh, yeah. Their stories <laughs> both emphasize their, their morality, their intelligence. Oftentimes, it's someone who figures out a way, thinks it through and figures out a way to enact God's will upon the world. And so what's being valued in each of their stories is, are they steadfast? Are they faithful to God? And in many stories also, it's, are you creative? Are you willing to come up with a a clever solution to a problem? And God kind of rewards that and helps them in that. 
So it sounds like、mm. maybe being a nerdy guy not such a bad thing. <laughs> Cute to all the men out there, the nerdy men. <laughs> most of what I see, I guess, to the question of what's a biblical man, I think it's most of the things I would think about are for people in general, like just mature, generic people. Things like being responsible. Everyone should be responsible. Courageous. Everyone should be courageous. And the Bible has. Has those feminine examples as well. Like there are women who are obviously courageous. There are women who are protectors, even right. Think about the story of Jael, who who killed the、uh, commander of the、yeah. of the Canaanites. When everyone is commanded to have empathy and compassion, not just women.、Mm-hmm. So, I guess for me, we're not there. We're not back then. There's a lot that you have to work on to apply it to now. Otherwise, you're just going to be a great like third century BC man or like a first century <laughs> a、mm-hmm. man in Philippi or something. I don't know. It's hard for me to to parse what was the biblical man and what was the pastor that I was listening to's ideal of a biblical man、mm-hmm. being superimposed onto these men in the Bible. First of all, it's a lot of men in the men in the Bible, like. And、uh, we don't hear about jail. You know, that's always the like. Did you know? You know, kind of whispered whispered about、um, casually. We, you know, I've never heard a sermon on jail. The woman.、Um, you always hear about Ruth, and you know because tied to a man. Because she's tied to a man, <laughs> and he always and Boaz's redeeming quality. Even though Ruth was the one who went towards him, his redeeming quality was that he was the provider. And、um, I think about. Hearing a lot of sermons about Adam's downfall of letting a woman like blaming Eve for what what happened and like how that was bad because、mm. he should have been the man and spoken up and taken responsibility. So, I I guess I always just hear whenever I hear people、uh, speaking on biblical masculinity, it just never really strikes. It, it it seems like it's more about what that pastor is trying to get across as opposed to like what is the, the like the through lines of of the Bible, which is to like. Have men who are sensitive to the heart of God and are sensitive, therefore, like kind and gentle to the people around them. Yeah, I think、um, everyone here said something、um, allowing us to reflect on kind of the brokenness of masculinity in the church and moving towards a redeemed image. Like Scott was alluding to, you know, his、uh, fellowship using Braveheart as the example of manhood, and that's actually used a lot. Um, an analysis of what's wrong with you know, church's <laughs> definition of manhood,、um, using、uh, <laughs> William Wallace and John Wayne as this like rugged type of masculinity, right? And a lot of this, and we mentioned this in our podcast on womanhood and in, in the church, is from this like sort of this double down in the '60s and '70s, right, of the evangelical movement of fundamentalism. You know, against the perceived threats of feminism and communism,、yeah. so doubling down on this like idea that you know cannot encompass any other nuance, like this is what a man is, and I think like you were saying, Tamara, without looking at this whole broad spectrum of what a man could be, that is so sad. That's、mm-hmm. like losing you know almost a part of God's image in、mm-hmm. how God can you know create somebody and give somebody. You have these、uh, messages given to men that you know they have to be this like. You know, paragon of masculinity, and this is what it looks like. Like that is so so much pressure, so much pressure, and that has so much like toxic psychological effects. Like no wonder, like dating is so <laughs> weird and awkward. Right. 
no wonder Mike Pence can't like be with a woman alone, right? Like why like, he yeah. made it so weird. Yeah. And you have Jesus sitting with a Samaritan woman at the well and he's fine. Like he can have healthy relationships with a woman, like talking to her alone. I had a uh, conversation with a good uh, male friend who had just started dating. This was a couple of years ago. And he asked me for advice on how to lead her spiritually. (laughs) And they had been together a couple of just a couple of months, but he was like agonizing over what it looked like for him to lead her. I remember Um, having so many of these conversations about leading. Yeah. And bless his heart, (laughs) I will say in in the Southern way. Um, What I told him was, I don't think that's your job to do it right now you're yeah she doesn't belong to you um your relationship i think probably it's more healthy if you guys are two individuals who are evaluating whether or not you should partner together like this is not this doesn't have like the same stakes if you will as a committed relationship of marriage which is where like if y'all want to debate who's leading whom in a relationship a marriage relationship i respect that but when you're dating I don't think you should look at the a woman and be like, okay, how can I fix you? And how can I keep you in line and make sure to put these guardrails around you? And and I that was the advice I tried to give him. But I wasn't surprised he was asking that question because I've, I've heard plenty of uh, advice or like counseling uh, from a pastor to young men about how to make sure that you're leading the woman. Like, you're, again, above. Jenny, I'm curious if you hear if you, your, about your conversations. Yeah, I think a lot of them were. <laughs> it's it's funny to think back on the things that we obsessed about as mm. young Christian women in college. Um, but yeah, so many conversations about leading and what does that mean and how do you let somebody lead and all agonizing over. But what if, you know, I've been a Christian for 20 years and he's been a Christian for two years. How right. can are he we, leave Are we unequally yoked? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> because just, he has the natural qualities. I'm joking. <laughs> just all questions that not, we weren't asking the right questions. You know, we weren't asking, you know, is this, is this somebody that I could partner with to do God's work together for 60 years? We were asking these impossible we're like trying to do some sort of mathematical thing to figure out i don't know (laughs) a lot of wasted time (laughs) a lot of wasted time i mean i I think whenever me the women uh whatever we got together the girls i should say in college we it always inevitably landed on men and talking about our crushes or who were dating etc always and our time was always uh, centered and i think time was wasted but also our imaginations were shrunk considerably uh about what was possible because we were all trying to fit this this elusive paradigm of what it should be, like what a biblical man or a biblical woman should be to a biblical man. And so we were just waiting to be chosen and waiting to feel, be the accessory for that biblical or figuring out how to be, be the best accessory. <laughs> it's one of those things that I look back with nostalgia because now I worry about things like my health insurance and right. to be in the days when... I worried about what it means to be led. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Those conversations don't, we mature, but those conversations don't necessarily mature. So it seems like within our group, we're all obviously progressive and we all have progressive understandings of uh, what it means to be a biblical man and a biblical woman. Knowing that, you know, 
we're suspicious of a lot of what has been passed down onto us and that we are more open-minded to images and frameworks that are, that are flexible. My question is, what do you guys look for when you think of like a strong Christian man? You want to say a strong Christian man or a Christian man without assuming strength? I like the word strong because it's kind of loaded. Like, yeah. what do you mean and, by that? Yeah. And like, when you think of someone like, who is kind of, Lame. <laughs> a Christian man is kind of lame. Well, like, well, like, why? Why are they lame? I think of a uh, anecdote from Jenny. Where I think of a lame Christian man. Ooh. Oh boy. What is it? Um, I knew somebody once at a church who had already purchased his family home. When he would have the congregation over, we would go to his house that had you know a full size house, and he would show you around. And he said, "Well, this is going to be the baby room." This man was not married. He was not dating anybody. <laughs> oh, my uh, God. Not for lack of trying. But <laughs> he was so focused on what he wanted his life to be that he would do anything to get there. And I think that was something that was definitely taught to him by the church growing up, that this is what you should be. As a man, you need to have the good job, which he did because he afforded this nice house. And then you need to buy that house. And then your woman can stay at home and take care of your baby. And I think the church had preached that so much to him that he didn't have a vision of maybe his singleness as being a gift, like something that God could mm-hmm. use, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, because, um, of course, God uses single and not single people in different ways. But yeah, he definitely wasn't living into his singleness. Pretty lame. That's that's like a great example of how in the church we have idolized the family institution. And when you combine that with just a regular secular culture that idolizes uh, romance, um, you know, I, I do see a lot of Christian men who have this hopeless romantic disposition. And just like you said, Jenny, they're so desperate for a relationship, they're so desperate to get married, and they don't realize that uh, maybe God has something bigger in mind. So I don't know if you all uh, recently heard the news on Carl Lenz, the senior pastor of Hillsong Church. Yeah. So I think he's a lame guy. What happened? (laughs) Say more. (gasps) So he's a pastor of Hillsong Church in New York City, uh, which is known to be like a concert-like experience. He's a very fashionable guy who hung out with celebrities such as Justin Bieber, the Kardashians. I've been Kanye. there to his church. He wears very tight pants. He's, he wears very tight pants and he wears like designer stuff. And for many years, it was always like, oh, how cool. He, this is like the pastor to the, to the celebrities. And part of me was like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's good because, you know, pastors need God as well. Uh, but he always seems a little bit of a kind of douchey to me, for lack of a better word. Just kind of sleazy and like, is this guy really for real? Like to be able to live this kind of lifestyle and are you really following the steps of your I, Lord I, and also, Savior, Jesus Christ? He also like inspired a whole trend of lead pastors wearing leather jackets on stage. And like, like he started that. Yeah. V-necks and leather jackets. He started that. That's too hot. It's too hot. <laughs> so then in the last few weeks, there was a story that broke that he um, was terminated from his position. Um, and the first kind of waves of news headlines was that um, it was due to leadership issues and, you know, possible um, infidelity in his marriage, celebrityism of, you know, church figures. And it's pretty much as bad as you think, just a very like aloof 
person who really got caught up in the power and the fame and the fortune. And that's what I think of as a lame man is someone who lets power go to his head and just does not have the humility to reflect on where, where he is and, and to do better. Mm. I agree. Piggybacking off of that, to borrow a church phrase, I think <laughs> it is kind of lame that like for a Christian guy to uh, one, see marriage as an accomplishment. And, and I do think the church stokes the desperation that we're describing. Mm. But two, to either create these little kingdoms called churches um, and be the charge of those kingdoms or be um, like a loyal servant to the king of the kingdom, aka the pastor. And again, I do believe that a lot of times church culture, so celebrification of church culture um, creates this like desire for approval and affirmation and because the the pastor is close to God. And so if I'm close to the pastor, I'm close to God. It, it, it's practical in these very uh, insular bubbles. But when you step back, as I have in the past couple of years, ha- you realize how really corny it all is. <laughs> like when you go to weddings and it's like, it feels like people are treating it like, like an event of a season, but it, it's weddings are great, but it's not like... I shouldn't be following you or your your Instagram life isn't more important than mine just because you're married or have children. You know, like, I know that sounds like judging, but I just think there is like this encouragement, this idolization of the family structure. And it does start with the man being the head, the man. If they can be charismatic, if they can be popular, if they can be interesting or funny or have a large following, then they're probably more close to God. In every In every church I've ever been in, there's been this underlying assumption that marriage is a is a badge of faith, and being married, and especially being a father, automatically makes you a leader. It automatically makes you wiser. It automatically means you're closer to God. Mm-hmm. You know, which is ridiculous. And I, I know that we've been uh, kind of down on the traditional ideas of biblical manhood. And let me just say, here is the easiest way that I will destroy your idea of biblical masculinity. We said a biblical man is one, a family man, two, a provider, and three, a protector. Jesus was absolutely none of those things. <laughs> Jesus was celibate. Um, Jesus could not finance his own ministry. Women did sometimes. Read Luke chapter 8. It specifically says in Luke chapter 8 that his ministry was financed by women out of their own means. And then number three, protector. Jesus could not protect himself as he was being arrested and beaten and ultimately died on the cross. I literally got chills when he said that. That was an alley-oop and a slam dunk, <laughs> <Yeah>. Scott. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's like, yeah, Jesus, they treat him like the biggest maverick. And he was in a sense, but he was a maverick because he deferred to women and he talked to the poor. and He ignored the most powerful men. And yeah, he was a maverick for his feminine quality. For me, a lot of it is like a lot of stuff that's quote unquote more masculine is that way because of the fallen world, like men getting more power. Or people telling women to act like this to get a man because income and privilege like inequalities mean that being attached to men is like a way up in a sense, right? Or safety. But we do live in a binary though. Like it is a fallen world, but that is what we have to work around. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's worth it to do that. I guess for me, it's like 100% worth it to do that. And I think that part of, I guess, what I see with Christianity is trying to like, you know, like you have heaven you have the new heavens and the earth you have jesus making all things new it's kind of like if sin wasn't there what is the goal what are you 
shooting for in a sense you know like well, what imagining but isn't the secular world doing a better job of achieving that than the church world of equity between the, the sexes i definitely see yeah unfortunately yes i think in many yeah. i think there's things that christians have done um but then overall with the church yeah it's definitely done including all the church definitely i would say the secular world has done better i guess they could call it good samaritan mm-hmm. have done a lot of positive godly things more than Special church religion. I do think it's it would be nice to live in a post gendered world, but I think it, but it would be good to like how to take down a lot of the like I guess poor lessons that are perpetuated. But I do think there are there are some good. I mean, not just talking about the ideal, but talking about our actual lives now. I think it's kind of like dealing with the stereotypes. Like one of the obvious, most obvious times I realized I was a man was when I moved to Saudi Arabia. Obviously. So from then on, just acknowledging and trying to deconstruct men's privilege in society, trying to be, for me as a man, just trying to be aware of the things, I guess kind of like everything I tell white people to do, I kind of have to do now, <laughs> in a sense. That, that's kind <laughs> <It's> of, basically... <laughs> well, that's kind of what I was trying to get at without saying it, is by saying something is, it should be non-gendered, it's like saying... There's, there shouldn't be race, but there is. And I guess I'm curious what it looks like like to embrace and or like engage these topics with the honest truth that we are living in, a, the, in these constructs. Of course, nobody wants to be defined by the race or ethnicity, especially in negative ways that uh, diminish their power or increase. But we are, we do, and we are. So I guess that's what I was curious what it would look like for you to engage the topic with the truth that we all, like, the women on this call are extremely, extremely aware of ideal Christian ideals because we have been, it's been beating our head to what it's supposed to look like for women to be accessories to men. And so I guess it will be really cool to see men engage the topic as well because we've had to de- deprogram ourselves from being seen as just parts of someone else's life yeah, Tamara, mm-hmm. you're saying like how women were women have been conditioned to be like an accessory well we literally were accessories there's no other path for us that was our survival was to speaking. like be yeah. part of a family to start a family all right guys so we want to introduce a new segment this week we were just thinking for the Justin podcast how it would be great to you know, have more mini segments to break up our episodes because there's so many things we want to talk about, especially more lighthearted topics, and we never have the time to get to them. And so the topic that we want to introduce is called Better Is One Day Without This Song. Now our segment, Better Is One Day Without This Song, this is where we share worship songs that we think are either overrated or we just think there's something about the song or the lyrics that's kind of funny, that um, is kind of silly. Again, we're just poking fun because among all of us, you know, we have pretty vast church experience and we appreciate our upbringings. We appreciate the work that people put into praise and worship. And we just are so familiar with it. It's fun to talk about it and joke about it. No harm, no foul. So guys, what do you have to share for um, the worship song that you think is overrated? I'll share mine. So it's not so much the lyrics or even the song, but the way it's sung, it just kind of grates on me. Um, it could just be me in particular. So it's You Are Holy, the one where like the guys sing one verse and then the <laughs> women sing mm-hmm. like the same verse like yeah. in 
like following the men. So it's like, I will follow. I will follow. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And it's like, <laughs> it just starts to really get super annoying. And I mean, I don't mean to be so 2020, but what if you don't identify with men or women? Like, where do you say, <laughs> yeah. Well, and that, as someone who does enjoy that song, it is interesting. Yeah, that one thing I always found was like, it's interesting how it's like really simple at the beginning, and then you have like a million lyrics at the end. <gasps> Lord of Lords, King of Kings, fighting. Oh like, yeah, yeah, and, and you have to you have to like put work into learning that last part, <laughs> which I enjoy doing. But yeah, it is true. It is very follow lead. Uh, is that a, a complementarian? Complementarian. <laughs> yeah. So I I don't know because I refuse both concepts. <laughs> yeah. Don't you guys ever, like, get sick of singing that song? And you're like, you know what? I'm just going to sing the wrong part. I think I've done that mm-hmm. a couple times. Can you can you be annoyed by a song and still like it? Because I do still like yeah, the song. But that's yeah. why we're doing the segment. Yeah, I like, yeah. don't hate it. It's just the, Dude, these are love-hate songs. The delivery yeah. bothers me. Yeah, and Maybe I can do left side room, right side room instead of, hey, men, you started off. And yeah. I'm like, you followed that. That's, that's a good point, actually. That's a good point. I think songs that I don't like are ones that I don't think should be corporate worship songs so songs that are just Mm -hmm. and i feel like in hipster churches they kind of do this a lot Mm -hmm. but an example is john mark mcmillan's what's that song called death in his grave though the earth cried out for blood can i sing it i'm not supposed to sing it oh i know what you're talking about i only know death in his grave yeah that one (laughs) the ones where it's very clearly a solo selection but they put the words on the screen to make you feel like you're a part yeah. of the well, experience. Well, everyone's trying to sing it, but it's not that kind of song. <laughs> yeah, and you you wonder how it ended up being selected, and you do sometimes wonder how much ego was That's involved. a great point. That's funny. I, yeah, I do always take, like, for instance, the song by Chris Tomlin, Indescribable. That's my submission. I still don't know the lyrics because it, it is just like a – Merriam-Webster's Dictionary of Songs, which I'm, I'm pro, like, having lots <laughs> Wait, what of... what do you mean? Because it's indescribable. Well, uncontainable. Uncontainable. All-powerful, incomparable, unchangeable. Attitude. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like yeah, a Christian thesaurus. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's the, it is the, like, corporate worship thing that I take issue with. Like, it's it's a fine song, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't really lend itself to me as far as, like, connecting a whole group of people together and as we know Mm. since we're in covid that type of space is at a premium and so i guess it just has me examining how special it is to have songs that bring people together Mm. that are simple Mm. and do create like make it an inviting experience as opposed to one where we're just like gasping and pause starting and then finally just give up and watch the soloist in front (laughs) (laughs) that's a good description like worship songs should connect us and bring us together and to the presence of God. But uh, when it fails, that becomes like my worship pet peeve. And that is why my nominee for today is Come, Now is the Time to Worship. <laughs> I hate songs that tell me what to do. <laughs> like I know like by telling people what to do, you're inviting them into worship. It's like, hey, everyone, let's worship. But by explicitly saying that, it's like, ugh, my nonconformist personality comes out. And I'm like, no. <laughs> so if they say come now it's the time to worship I'm like no now it's the time to sit down and finish my coffee sorry Scott did you feel like that when the stand was really in because it kind of tells you to um, stand and have your arms high and heart abandoned oh yeah fortunately I haven't <laughs> sung that one too many times but I would feel the same way let my worship be organic 
Or like Marvelous Light, where it's like, lift my hands and spin around. Oh, that, yeah, that's a good one, Tamara. It's like, I'm not a very emotion-y kind of person when it comes to worship, so it's like, ooh, I don't want to do that. But you feel more or less pressured depending on the church you're in. Like, I've been in churches singing that where it was like, no one expected anybody to do that. And in other churches where it was like, mm-hmm. oh, you're supposed to do that. <laughs> yeah. What about open the eyes of my heart? <laughs> like, just the lyricism of it and the concept of eyes and the heart is... Kind of creepy. What? <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> and I know it's supposed to be, like, poetic, but, it, yeah, it, it's... Yeah, this is so it's funny fine. because both of your songs, Tamara, I really like. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, oh, Jenny. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not coming for you. This is not a personal attack. And and like I said, Amber came for um, You Are Holy. I like that song. I too. like that one too. <laughs> well, I still can. I think we can make fun of it. Well, I, I think it's important for Christians to make fun of those because we are still human. And yeah, we can still have like snobby taste in our, our artistry. I think <laughs> we should. <laughs> I think going back to Scott's example, the Braveheart example too, instead of trying to have a session on masculinity and and thinking of, you know, what makes men different from women, oh, they throw rocks. Um, (laughs) Having a more (laughs) down-to-earth approach, actually, like what Tamara said, like looking at, okay, what's going on in society right now and what can men specifically do to bring God's kingdom? here on earth. It's like, well, we don't live in this sort of abstract concept world of masculinity. Um, What can men specifically do (laughs) in the world that's not throwing rocks, that's more productive than that? Yeah, I think a lot of the problems that men face in today's world actually comes from our socioeconomic framework, where you know, in times past, the you know, men were able to challenge themselves with, uh, you know, rising up to historical occasions. You know, like obviously we don't we don't want there to be war, but you know, men stepped up in times of of war and poverty and depression to be able to create something for their families and for themselves to create beyond their means. And you know, now that we're living in a time where everything we're living in a pretty much a neoliberal framework where the value of every individual is based off of their economic worth, is based off of their financial success. The choices before men today are only, you know, like career success and family success, and that's basically it. There's less pathways for men to explore their manhood and to explore who it is that God made them to be. And that's why I'm not surprised that a lot of them are, um, you know, going into video games or unhealthy habits because they're confused and they're Mm -hmm. trying to find meaning and worth for their lives and they don't know where to find it. So I don't blame them at all. I think it's a really sad situation for men. Yeah. Along with what you're saying, there's less specific normal indicators of men to, to feel good about themselves as men. So being able to think about it positively as opposed to for instance, if someone's white and they say, oh, I'm white, I hate that I'm white. White people suck. I think you don't want to have men only thinking about the negative in a self-hating way. As we're doing our work to make as men to make the world 
more equal and deal with the negative things that men have done. So should we talk positives? Mine comes from uh, I read "Men Are from Mars, Women Are from Venus," <laughs> which is a book that is all about the supposed differences between men and women. It's rather an old book. I think maybe it was published in ninety two. So I read the book, and I was fortunate enough at the time to be dating somebody who was very emotionally mature. Who Um, in retrospect, was more emotionally mature than I was. Um, and I remember reading the book and thinking, wow, I feel like in my relationship, I'm from Mars and he's from Venus. And what I realized was that the book was just comparing not a man and a woman, but emotionally mature and an emotionally <laughs> immature person. That's, that's a word. So I think... Wow, I never thought about the book like that. Yeah, go ahead. I think a great positive in a man is emotional maturity. Um, and I've been so blessed to know so many Christian men who are emotionally mature. And of course, we can all grow in that area. So if you're a man and you're listening, you might be thinking, oh, that's not me. Um, you'd be surprised. Like a man who is just willing to hear and talk about my feelings, like, oh, I've been feeling really down and like going through a difficult time who can like help me process that without trying to fix that. I've had so many Christian men who are able to do that. And they didn't even know they were good at it. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Maybe they thought that they were less masculine for it, but it's actually this wonderfully mature thing to be able to kind of process through somebody else's feelings and think, you know, how would I be feeling in this situation? Um, what kind of response could I give that would help? And men who are just willing to say, this made me feel really sad. I went through a really difficult time in my life. It was really hard for me and it still affects me to this day. That's huge. And that's something that I feel like the whole Christian life is, is leading us more and more towards self-awareness, you know, awareness of not our sin, but more than that, just kind of who we are and how we respond to situations and, and how we need God's help. And I think emotional maturity, like being able to, to know yourself, is very important to letting God in your life and seeing, wow, I, I, I'm a little messed up inside. <laughs> wow, I'm a lot messed up inside. I really need supernatural help with this. Emotional maturity would definitely be my pick. That's great. And um, another thing you mentioned was just having that humility to realize that um, you have room to grow. I think on the flip side, you know, like the supposed Christian leaders of the church, you know, middle-aged white men are very confident in what they have to teach and they don't know what they're talking about. I think it's bordering on arrogance. Like they're, like they're speaking out of an experience that does not match the socioeconomic realities of young people today. And it's better to be humble right, than mm -hmm. to think you know it all. Always. Yeah, and I also add something that's underrated about Christian men is that we have a heart to serve. You know, if you ask us to do something, we'll do it. Unfortunately, a lot of times that has been used to, to the detriment of the spiritual growth of young men, where we want to do something, we want to grow as disciples, and so they tell us to be the parking lot usher, or they tell us to fold chairs. You know, that's fine every, to help out every now and then. But um, I do feel like we have a willingness to serve. God has it for a lot of people. 
he has greater vocational destinies in mind for them than their church leaders are giving them. Yeah, I agree. I also, I've enjoyed something as simple as seeing men like sing or be artistic in the church, uh, even yeah, saying play guitar, et cetera, you know, removing, I guess, ego, if you will, and just seeing that expression in that, I guess, right-brained way in a very, yeah, like you could say in sometimes in ways that are seen, seen as feminine. And I love seeing, I guess, Christian men embrace that. I guess one of the things we were showing in this podcast, we're at different places. Also, I'm in process with a lot of this. I think when men are dealing with like, not being complete in a certain area or needing to process this or that or getting help or therapy or something like that, which interestingly enough in hip hop has been a lot more popular. Yeah. I think whenever there's an aspect that God wants us to do or be at, but we're kind of culturally steered away from that, if we can kind of go back to that. So you're saying if a man can embrace the fact that they're in construct under construction always. Yeah, just because there's pressure to not be like that, to deal with that. Yeah. If society is kind of like pushing you one way away from some aspect of maturity as a person, instead of just being like, oh, it's okay, society says it's okay for me to be accomplished and emotionally unstable because I'm a man, it's okay. It's like moving away from that. Cool. Maybe in closing, we could talk about what the church, like recommendations, what the church should do. There's this obsession about criticizing young men. There's pretty much zero dialogue about mentorship towards positive pathways of masculinity. It's don't play video games, get married, have kids, right? That's it. And because that's the only talking point within the church, there is no guidance there is no counseling. There is no mentorship to help men to fulfill their identities that God has for them. There is no search for meaning. There is no search for existential fulfillment. It's just these are the things you have to do. Mm-hmm. I will tell anyone who is in a leadership position in the church, you know, don't limit the manhood that is clearly manifested in the biblical narrative. There are so many ways to be a man. There are so many ways to live out your identity as a God-fearing man. And uh, we should be encouraged to explore them and to create new vocations with them. It's exciting to think about what else is out there um, other than what our economic pressures tell us to do. Um, think about the great men in Christian history. You know, St. Francis of Assisi, uh, William Wilberforce, Martin Luther King Jr. You know, there are so many different destinies out there for us. And why are you limiting men to such a small future? Mm. We should embrace the unknown and embrace creativity. Which kind of touches on what Dave was talking about earlier. Like, what if this was a non-gendered discussion of how to be a good human as opposed to mm-hmm. an ideal Christian man? Or Yeah, what I said also applies to women. Yeah, that's pretty funny. That's my whole <laughs> but, but, yeah. but we are – that's what we all want is to not be defined by what we are. But unfortunately, we all are. Like, my, li- I, my life has been defined as a black woman. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. I feel like, Scott, we should almost end there because that was so good. But I want to pile on the the mentor thing for a second mm-hmm. because I think that the church would be just a great place for establishing really strong community structures. I think that would be something special that the church would and should be able to offer to the world, especially in a world that's increasingly isolated, a church that brings people together together 
And I haven't yet attended a church that had a really robust kind of mentorship structure. I've been to many churches that told me to get a mentor, but I've been to none that helped me to get one. So I think along with mentoring young men, not just like what we were saying before, not just telling them not to play video games, but giving more concrete steps to follow. Um, and not just telling men to get a mentor, but maybe having people sign up, maybe asking people, would you be willing to mentor? Would you be willing? Because I think a lot of young people, um, young men in particular, would take that option if it was available. You know, if you could just sign up and and have like a, a one or two trial session with a mentor, that would be great. Yeah. I think everyone should go to therapy. That was my only point, honestly. And I, I think it would be really cool to see all healthy parts of us um, being encouraged and cultivated. And I feel for the Christian men, I do. Um, you know, it even as someone who's been hurt badly by the paternalism, I do think, you know, when you're when we encourage these unhealthy patriarchal or paternalistic habits, it hurts, it hurts the men. And it, it, it can cause a lot of confusion when, like Jenny mentioned, the guy, when you, when you have built all this structure and you don't have the, the trappings of success to fill it, it can be very confusing and you can feel like you're outside of God's will or uh, you're weak, et cetera, when you're not, you just are living the life that you have. So I, I think, I think it'll be really great if, we as a, a church culture um, encouraged more mental health, the better mental health. I think ways to reach out to men that pastors can do. Dealing with power that men have been given through sinful means, how to deal with that as a man, as a Christian man. As we move towards equality, there are people who resist that. And I think that's a clear, obvious thing that men should not do. <laughs> so like just getting people through, what does it look like to move from, while valuing yourself as a man, how does it look to deal with power that we should not have had in the first place? Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been another amazing episode of the Judson Podcast. And as always, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Judson Podcast or email us at info at JudsonPodcast.com. We're available on Google Play, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. And let us know what you think, what you think of any of the ideas that we talked about here today. We would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for listening.